Yeah, they're not in the teleportarium. They're on a dam. episode 28 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dan Wellington. Hello. And Dave Barker. Hey Tony, hey listeners, hey Dan. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at NarrativeWarGamer. You can also contact us via email at NarrativeWarGamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon, Casual Conversations, and gain access to our patrons-only group chat. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. And... It has been growing. I've uh, I've been a little busy myself recently, but I've noticed David pitting more and more people to our uh, Facebook group. Yeah, very happy to do that. Every time we see somebody new come in um, and answer the questions and uh, just make sure we're not uh, spamming people and adding to the people group unnecessarily. That's why we ask the questions, right? It's great to see uh, a lot of the responses we get when we put up one of those notices and we see some of the cool things that people are working on. So uh, almost always those posts are answered with, with the projects that people are, are currently working on. And uh, it's, uh, I really enjoy seeing some of those photos. Yeah, I mean, I know myself, whenever I see a, a new, like, welcome to the group post go up, um, I always just wait, like, for the reply from the new member, because it, it usually always comes in with some sort of, you know, like, oh, great to be here, enjoying the show. Um, and, like, sometimes... They just leave a little message that just warms my heart and they say things like, oh, I've just discovered the show and it just really resonates with me or it's just exactly like my take on the game. And, you know, <laughs> I don't find other shows like this out there and I'm enjoying it because yeah. there's been a few messages now from people like that and it's just, it, it really does just help let us know that people are out there enjoying us ramble on about yeah. this game that we play. These are our people. We're not alone. Thank you for listening to us, everybody. We're not just talking to ourselves. <laughs> for the most part, anyway. Um, but yeah, so it's always it's always great to see more people listening to the show and discovering it. So I'm glad they're out there and I'm glad they find the group. And Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so tonight... Um, we are going to actually be covering the second part 
of the Flashpoint Charidon series in the White Dwarf articles for the last sort of three months, really. Um, because, believe it or not, we've still got more Charidon <laughs> content <laughs> for this show, even though, at this moment in time, pre-orders for Book of Fire um, are going up this coming weekend. So... I think you did uh, predict, you read the Emperor's Tarot three months ago and predicted that this stuff would keep coming in White Dwarf. Yeah, and they're not slowing it at all because, so this has now been a solid nine months on the trot that every single issue of White Dwarf has had a flashpoint of some sort in it. We had the first three months with Flashpoint Argon. Yep. We've now had six months worth of Flashpoint Charidon. And... The last, the latest issue, and the recent community posts have announced that there's a new flashpoint in Flashpoint Octavius in the next month's issue. Mm. So I can assume that's probably going to be at least three months worth of um, flashpoint information for that sector of the um, Imperium as well. That's a pretty reasonable assumption. Be interesting uh, to see what comes there. A bit, bit, yeah. a bit of a stretch calling it a sector of the Imperium. I mean, it's mostly inhabited by bugs and orcs, but yeah. um, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I I do wonder exactly what it's going to be and what we're going to see in terms of the kind of the overall story behind it. Um, I mean, it seems like it's going to be the flagship sort of like release for the orcs range, you know, with the new Snagger Boys and everything, and it explains why these orcs have got this beast fighting complex if they're spending all their time fighting tyranids. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Just, uh, all <laughs> um, all day fighting tyranids gets wall. And I I will <laughs> I, I will admit that while it rattled me somewhat that two narrative books featuring the Charadon sector <laughs> did seemingly not include or feature the arch arsonist of Charadon and one of the largest orc empires in Imperial space. Yep. And I am assuming at this point the Book of Fire has no orc content, but I think that's probably a fair assumption at this point. Yeah. I, I certainly haven't seen anything shouting about it. No. But I think one of the few explanations for why that is that would have possibly I've been happy with was exactly what they've done, which is that, in fact, the immediate follow-up is going to probably be the next most infamous orc conflict that's going on yep. in Imperial space currently. So I understand why it's probably going to be the orc releases in Octarius rather than Charidon. I wonder if we're going to have another uh, sort of narrative angle that uh, doesn't really have space marines in it. Well, I know that they've already mentioned that in the upcoming flashpoints for Octarius, there's going to be some space marine rules for like the Dark Krakens chapter, oh, okay, um, and the Salamanders, I believe. Fair and enough. I think Charidon has more or less stretched a six-month period now. You know, COVID timeline disruptions allowing, so I cannot see Games Workshop, you know, going further beyond the six-month mark without some kind of Space Marine <laughs> release or rules. Oh, they got to sneak in their Space Marine fix, haven't they? At the, the very least, we need a new Primaris Lieutenant, don't we, by now? Yeah, <laughs> surely. <laughs> got to have one of them. It, it, 
It's fine. You'll end up being on the base of this new orc war boss. But yeah, so we are in fact not talking about Flashpoint Octarius tonight. We are talking about Flashpoint Charidon. So we've got a bunch more um, theatres of war, some new crusade relics and battle traits, and even a mission, which we was not expecting, which is interesting. Um, And then I'm hoping that the next episode is probably going to be the last sort of episode focused on Charidon Part 1 content. Um, and then probably the episode after that is going to be launching straight into Book of Fire content, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're not done in Charidon yet. No. So um, we are going to be uh, going over all that for the main part of the show. We have actually got a small um, selection of games played between us. So we're actually going to have our proper first games played segment for the first time in probably over a year now. Yeah. Um, and then we'll finish up with a couple of our community spotlights, as we always do. And uh, yeah, that should be, our, should be our show for tonight. So, before we jump headlong into it, we've just got a couple of announcements to go over. The first of which is we have got some brand new patrons since the last time we recorded. So thank you very much to Mr. Stuart Kelly and Mr. Andrew Bigwood. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for joining. Your support is very much appreciated. And I can say that you've also both been quite active members in the Facebook group ever since you joined. So clearly you've leapt in feet first into our crazy little world of content creation. And uh, we clearly see that you're enjoying it. So... Welcome aboard, and thank you. I must confess I do know uh, one of those gentlemen. I, uh, Stuart Kelly's been to our club uh, quite a lot in the past, and uh, he's part of our Bolt Action community in the past. And um, I think he's uh, coming back from emergence into family life, back into to wargaming a little. So uh, welcome back to the fold, Stu. Are you, are you saying you press-ganged him? No, no, no. I'm saying that he's, um, he's allowed away from... Uh, Paternity duties for a little while. Fair. I was going to say, if I was expecting Dave to press gang people, I'm sure you'd have got plenty more people on board by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. I'm not that mean. You got to, <laughs> you got to let people come when they're ready. Yeah. I mean, they they get fed up with us. <laughs> I, I mean, to mention Andrew um, again when he sort of um, signed up and he, he jumped into the Facebook group, he was one of these people who mentioned that. He just really enjoyed, like the aspect of the game, like of forty k that we focus on and we talk about because he's actually an avid Age of Sigma player, and right. it's been in recent years that he's actually felt a little not not isolated, but like he's he's felt he's waned with his excitement for forty k and he's drifted from it as a game system for a while, mostly because of like the oversaturation of focus on competitive play and the current um, like the current formatting of the competitive side of the game and actually discovering the Narrative Wargamer podcast and listening to all the craziness that we talk about that's out there in 40k today <laughs> that does not get enough like you know limelight um, he's just 
been really enjoying it and discovering it again. And he says he's been, you know, it's been reigniting his interest for the game, which is great. It's great to hear, yeah. I'm, I'm going to touch on a little bit more. I'll save it later for when I get to my games played because I've, I've certainly had some experiences. But touching on the, the Age of Sigmar thing, that's a, a game that I've played occasionally. It's definitely not something I, it's fun to pick up with the club, but it's not something I want to get seriously into. Uh, but a lot of the games I've played with my friends are that have been narrative in style. Uh, and certainly one I remember particularly uh, before lockdown, we, we just wanted to play a big monster battle. So I, I dug out my old uh, metal Nagesh model, the one that everybody hates, but mm-hmm. I, I rather like. <laughs> uh, linked him up with my, uh, uh, I can't even remember the name of the faction, that's how little I play it, the ghost ones. Um, yeah, Night Haunt. Night Haunt. Yeah. Thank you, Night Haunt. Um, and I went against my friend's uh, citizen men army, uh, and he brought... Um, Gortrek, and uh, the, we just structured the scenario so it would be essentially a showdown between those two main characters supported by fights around the edge with the others. And, um, we, you know, we, we sort of planned out how we wanted it to play and how what kind of feel we wanted, but built it around a narrative structure of Gortrek calling out Nagash and him appearing on the battlefield. And, and uh, yeah, so, you know, any game like that. Normally we talk about 40K, of course, in this podcast. There's no reason why a lot of these same same basic ideas that we talk about, uh, and we talk about some of those rules and stuff, it, it can all, if you like Sage of Sigma, you can apply all the same all the same sort of ideas, and, and there are rules like, like we talk about 40K out there for Age of Sigma as well. Definitely and true. It, it's funny that Age of Sigma has sort of come up in conversations a little bit recently in our circle, because... It was, in fact, one of the main talking points of our latest casual conversations episode yes. over on the Patreon. Oh, smooth link. <laughs> I think it's funny that Andrew could possibly go listen to that now and hear our take on Age of Sigma. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we were talking a little bit more about the competitive stuff there. Uh, if I yeah, until I got right. deep in the weeds with the lore of the soul blight. Well, that, that's <laughs> true. You did do that. <laughs> I love me some old world vampires. Apparently so. Um, so yeah, if you want to go check that out, we uh, we also um, had a little chat about contrast paints, special characters in 40k, and um, sort of this extended concept of ninth edition war zones in the law, like how we've moved through the prior Nexus to Charidon and now on Octarius, and like our uh, musings about where we're going to be in 12 months time yep. it was a good conversation and I really enjoyed it <laughs> yeah absolutely hey. and um, whilst I won't spoil anything offhand I already have some future plans for um, an, another sort of mini series within our Patreons only exclusives so uh, when I have some more news on that I will uh, I'll update you all here cool <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's pretty much everything for the announcements. So um, I think we'll jump over now to our first games played in a long time. Da, 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 da. Games played. And we're back, guys. And believe it or not, we've been rolling dice. Yay! Together in the same room. Whoa. Well, two of you have. 
Yeah, two of us anyway, because funnily enough, the most recent game, or at least I believe at time of recording, still most recent game that both me and Dan have got in was actually a game together. Yes. Um, uh, we had a lovely, lovely crusade game. We did, and I am just enjoying Crusade more and more. Although I, I do feel like I'm now at a point where I've played enough with my little Crusade list. I know how I want to tweak it moving forwards, and it's been an interesting exercise planning my like um, requisition point expenditure to now like mold and manipulate my order of battle to be what I want it to be. How are you feeling, Dan, about his uh, highly structured and refined order of battle list that he had to go up against? Yes, quite. Uh, well, it, it, it was not so defined pre-game with Dan. <laughs> I have plans for how I would like to adjust the composition of units and such um, moving forward. But yes, it's uh, it was the first time that I have played a Strike Force mission using a Crusade Force. Um, I don't know if you've played one previously, Dan, or was that also your first Strike Force? Uh, I think I have played uh, one at about the same power level, actually. We played at 65 power level, didn't we? Yeah, so, you know, it's yeah. about 1,300 points, yeah. give or take. I feel like we've been kind of doing this wrong, because we probably should have just started by saying it was Death Guard against Orcs. True. Oh, well, I mean, I, okay, fine. Maybe the Death Guard wasn't assumed, but I think Orcs is pretty assumed. Yeah. So, <laughs> at this point, but yes. Um, it was a distinctly green battle, was it? Uh, yes. Kind and, of, uh, although, yeah, my, we, my guys aren't very green. Um, oh, they're brown, I quite forgot. That. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, just in case anyone was guessing, um, I played with Orcs, Dan played with Death Guard. <laughs> yep. that, wasn't, that wasn't in question that you were playing <laughs> um, Yeah, it was, it was a good little game, wasn't it? So we played, say, like 65 power level. We played Strike Force Mission from Plague Purge, um, which, funnily enough, was the Scavengers mission, which involved looting objective markers. So, pretty much in my wheelhouse as well as uh, Death Skulls. Yep. Um, and simply because I wanted to, uh, <laughs> I got out the lava markers for the, and we used the geothermal eruption battle zone from Vigilus. From all those years ago, if people can remember it. <laughs> but um, I remember playing that before lockdown. <laughs> yeah, in the before, when times. it was all fields around here, <laughs> all um, the lava markers came. But yeah, it was. Uh, I've played. I think I've played three games now using that battle zone, and I, I still really enjoy the effect it has as a whole. But I know that my more recent games with Plague Purge missions, I've typically used one of the Flashpoint battle zones because they feel. So like tied to it in a way and I think they do work well but for this one I just wanted to bust out these nice half markers and uh, attempt to burn up the battlefield as we clashed over it yeah my experience of that is it feels like you're well, both players feel like they they're, they're playing against the terrain as much as they're playing against each other was that, that your experience again kind of Funnily enough yeah I, I mean I can't can't speak for Dan, but I feel in this particular instance, because it was um, six objective markers and like the only victory points scored were by performing actions on them, Dan basically just <laughs> set up on the opposite flank to the lava to more or less yep. um, li limit its influence uh, and just forego the far two objective markers that were inevitably swallowed. 
Um, yep. I mean, I, I, I thought I, I would just stay away from the lava the whole game, and it wouldn't affect <laughs> me at all. That was the plan. That was the plan. But uh, there was, in fact, at least one significant casualty, and it was not an orc. <laughs> mm, no. Sneaky, sneaky. The, um, yeah, my uh, foul blight spawn um, kind of got warm feet a bit. <laughs> Just a bit. It was funny because he was sort of. It, it was in the last turns of the game. I think was it turn five? Uh, it was it turn. I think it was turn four. And this lava marker had to roll a six on its like d6 inches. Uh, movement in order to catch you, um, yep. and it did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you literally just sort of uh, pitched over the the event horizon, as it were, of this lava, and uh, it did not go well for him. Yep. I did uh, previously um, use the sort of uh, space altering effect of the lava in my plans because I deployed a blight bombardment stratagem. Um, oh yeah. In a big, big kind of like empty space in front of Tony's army so that he would have to either go th- into that and suffer mortal wounds or stay back and risk being enveloped by lava which was yeah. uh, and quite, on the quite far side of that blast zone there was also then a phalanx of uh, Blightlord Terminators who formed up yes. basically just watching the orcs make yeah, this we, impossible decision. We built a wall so they couldn't just drive straight through the Blight Bombardment so yeah, I mean, whilst it forced my hand into um, committing to this assault on the Blight Lords, um, I didn't end up losing anything to the lava, but it very much it took the decision-making away from me that turn in terms yeah. of, right, <laughs> I either back up and risk my units being consumed by the, you know, the battlefield, I- or I just have to plough through this orbital bombardment effect and try breaking out from these terminators. I think it's worth quickly mentioning that the lava effect in this is um, an encroaching set of markers that, if anything, is behind those the line of those markers. They're in the lava and they are just dead. Anything with no rolls or anything, just right. yeah, yeah. Unless they can fly, which none of our stuff could. Right. Yeah, we had no flying units in either. Side. Nothing. Um. And in fact, you yeah, had a plane like a... that didn't have wings. <laughs> yeah, for a while until it got hit by a power fist and then its uh, weakened armor once again cost it three mortal wounds. Well, that was that, before yeah. the power fist even rolled to wound. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, so in the end, it was a Death Guard victory. Yes. It was. Um, it was inevitable. <laughs> I mean, I I put up a fair fight as well, though. That's the thing. I ended up falling yes. foul of this same thing that keeps happening with this Crusade Force in that I whittled almost every single unit you had down to like last surviving members oh, or last yeah. couple of wounds, but they're not actually finishing them off. Uh, at one point, I think I had like three characters with one wound left running around. Yeah, and I was just trying to clip them with like um, just stray bullets from shooters yeah. and stuff at 18 inches. Um, I had two like deep striking units, um, one deep strike and one green tag unit, who both had to make charges like on a critical turn, and they both failed. Yeah, it was pretty unfortunate. Big swings. Um, and then ironically, the 
Meganobs who deep shook and failed their charge by an inch, then they ended up leveling up after the game and getting the battle trail of plus one to movement, advance, and charge. Yeah. <laughs> so in future Just games, one game too late. That. Yeah. Um, so the Death Wreckers are going to be having fun with that. But I think <laughs> there was it was very much um, my sort of standard game plan for that mechanized list as is, where uh, I threw the buggies forwards first, they caused some havoc and blow some stuff yep. up, and then hopefully take things out on their way out, which um, the Boombacker Snazwagon did exactly that. Oh, yeah. The Megatrack Scrapjet did a fair bit of work in combat, it's just... It very much unfortunately failed to inflict ramming speed mortal wounds on the turn it went in. Twice. I mean, twice. Yeah, so <laughs> naturally it inflicts mortal wounds on a 4 plus when it charges. I failed that one. And I'd also used the stratagem that turn to give it a 3d6 inch charge on a 2 plus. It does d3 mortal wounds. And I failed the 2 plus roll. <laughs> so two opportunities to inflict mortals on the charge and it, it, it came up short on both. But Without those, anyway, it did. It did then strip down this playmaker unit to just the champion. Yeah. Which, yeah, it'd have been nice if we could have killed him, and then he hadn't hit me back with the power fist. But I think if he hadn't have done, you basically would have just pulled the scrapjet apart in the following turn with your characters, anyway. Yeah. Well, I would have shot it if that hadn't happened. <laughs> yeah. Um. So it was more just annoying him, and I had to put some resources to killing that last plague champion later in the game. But. Yeah. Um. The real star for me, though, was my gun wagon, wasn't it? Definitely. Uh, it had a, a fun uh, duel with my warlord. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, obviously, I use the um, the like the custom job sap gun, which is still a surprise more people don't use, um, because it is hilarious. I mean, in the first two turns of the game, it was basically popping a Blightlord Terminator or two every time it fired, didn't it? Yeah, it was uh, it was very effective against my uh, expensive multi wound terminators. <laughs> yeah, here's this weapon which automatically hits, and if I roll a nine plus and two dice, it automatically inflicts three more wounds. Yeah, <laughs> like no wound roll, no saves, just mortals dead. <laughs> it repeated that trick when your Lord of Virulence decided to charge it, and I overwatched, didn't I? <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, it's like, I only get to fire it once on Overwatch, because I don't get to like double shoot the turret weapon. Yep. But it auto-hits. So, <laughs> it's a good choice yeah, was, for Overwatch. It was interesting. Um, but obviously that that battle was only ever going to have one end uh, in mutually assured destruction, right? Uh, yeah, so I, on the Overwatch, I stripped three of your six wounds off your lord. He then didn't kill it straight away. He, I think he knocked nope. down to like one wound, and then it in was my in turn, single digits, wasn't two. it? Yeah, it was literally clinging on like one and two wounds and stuff. Because I think in my turn, um, it then didn't even die to like your foul blight spawn charging it or anything like that. It happened to pass its saves and stuff, and it came down to your lord having to punch it again. Yep. Did did it survive the second round? Or so, not? I can't remember. Uh, well, what happened was the 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 last the second and last time the Lord punched it was after 
because that was in your turn, so you'd shot it again in your shooting phase oh, to reduce the yes. Lord down to a single wound. Yeah, yeah, that was it. I'd fired into cover because Zagzap is not a blast weapon. Yeah. <laughs> I just fired it at him point blank and stripped him again down to now one yep. wound. So, and because he is a, a Death Guard character with Disgustingly Resilient, he reduced the three damage to one. But to two, rather, so he'd had one wound left. Um, so then I eventually, my Warlord punched out the tank and then, of course, because it's a gun wagon, it explodes on a four-up. So it did. And yeah, as it I had a lot of do. stuff nearby. Yeah. Um, Ironhide went nuclear, as it as it does. And obviously, it took out your Lord of Virulence, your Warlord. Yep. Um, who had conveniently infected it with his uh, his unique plague um, yes. selection, hadn't he? Because we had to generate that for you. Yeah, that was fun. Um, you ended up with a... Uh, uh, a plague which basically affects people within three inches of you on a four plus, and then reduces the number of shots all their ranged weapons have by one to a minimum of one. Yep. So I had <laughs> I had this gun wagon just pitifully firing two shot big shooters, uh, um, various injured characters trying to pick them off. Yes, specifically, it is the hemorrhaging pitted sores. Lovely. I'm done them. Well. In the end, the gun wagon went up, it took out, it knocked your Black Lord Terminator unit down to a single member of one wound, who was your survivor unit for agenda, and I <laughs> yeah. could never get another bullet on him again by the end of the game. Yep. It, it crippled it your foul blight spawn before he then fell foul of the lava. Yeah. Um, it he, he had a bad day there crippled your malignant plague caster down to yep. I think one wound both, both of those went down to one wound as a result of that explosion <laughs> yep but okay. yep um, and took out the remainder of the plague marine squad that was also yep. hanging around so yeah it, it was it, went it was boom. pretty destructive yeah and uh, yeah it was, it was a really fun game um, it didn't end up going the way of the orcs on this occasion, but I don't they think it was a whitewash. Big fight, was... so got some crumping in. Things yeah, and uh, like I say, there were just one or two failed charges that were a shame, because uh, I mean, I, I didn't mention it, but I even used here we go sort of thing. Like, I'm aware yeah. of all the potential charge bonuses I could have been applying, and they still came up short <laughs> multiple times. Um, and so on, but they they weren't like I lost because of this one thing. So yeah, overall it was a it was a really fun game, and it was just nice to be able to you know, get it together was. and play a game in person again for the first time in six well not six months, more like nine months, I guess. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, it was uh, the the previous time we played was in September, I think. Yeah, <laughs> funnily enough, when we finished the game as well, we checked like what the mission reward was, and um, for winning, you. You got the option to use a requisition of your choice for free before yep. the start of your next game, which was really interesting because, I mean, when we when we sort of read that out, we both went straight to, oh, so you could acquire a tech part for your ad mech <laughs> yeah. for free. So, yeah, remember that. five requisition. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really interesting because it, it can be of any like requisition cost I mean I guess for you as a Death Guard player that's an opportunity to just get a virulent gift possibly uh, I had a bit of a look Book through it um, 
I don't know. I'm sure I want to play you next turn. Uh, I think I'm probably just using it to get more power levels so I can take more stuff. Uh, more options. It was interesting that it obviously can be cashed in for effectively more than one requisition point. And yeah. it, in effect, allows you to go above the five requisition point limit because you could have five RP and have this in the bank to use before your next game in addition. I, I'll tell you right now, it's incredibly unlikely that I will, I will ever get back to five requisition points. <laughs> <laughs> True. I mean, it's funny. So obviously, I was looking at how I'm going to plan to do stuff uh, with my advancements, and I had a plan for the requisition point that I got regardless um, to play in the game. And I thought, actually, I'm going to hold off on it because I realised that... Um, in the case of Crusade Relics and in the case of no sorry, not Crusade Relics in the case of Warlord Traits um, for characters you can buy them a Warlord Trait with a requisition point in the future once you know after they've been added to your order of battle but mm -hmm. you can only do so when they level up yeah so you can't just do it at any time. So if they level up as a result of playing a game, if you don't have spare acquisition to... I mean, I don't feel you'll always have one from the game you've just played. But say you earmarked that for something else, or you had two characters level up in the same game. If you don't have the pool of requisition points to spend there and then before your next game, you have to wait until the next time they level up to be able to do it. And you miss a window of opportunity not that obviously it has to be so stringent about it in terms of making sure you always get an upgrade every time but it was just a small point that I noticed I was like I might want to use this to repair the scrap jet but if mm. Zagdreg levels up in his next game and I don't have a requisition point spare that I was willing to spend on him to give him an extra wall trade I'd have to have one in the bank waiting yeah I can understand having one or two Sat there. I mean, five seems but... probably a little excessive unless you're yeah, up yeah. <laughs> I think there's just looking at it, it seems to be a little something to be said for keeping one or two points in the bank. Yeah. But it's just an idea. Um, <sighs> so, so Dave, anyway, hold on. I'm sure you have been up to incredibly vastly diverse, equally narrative, and in depth. Crusady games <laughs> for this yeah. crusading and narrative-based podcast. Sadly, I've not been worried about acquisition points at all, <laughs> to my regret. Um, yeah, no, I uh, I think I mentioned it before, last time I was on the podcast, so I, uh, one of my friends, Luke, signed me, uh, Lee, another friend, and, uh, and himself up to a, a 40k tournament just to get back out and playing some games again and give us a reason to get together and play games. Where during you know towards the end of lockdown when it was starting to ease, and we will be doing that as of the time of this recording. Probably when you release it, might have already already have gone. Depends how quickly you are with the with the editing, Tony. Uh, but we are next Saturday going to be playing at Saffron Slam in Saffron Walden in Essex, and, uh, which is not very far from where where we are. And um, that's been organised by a guy called Lewis, who runs a little um, painting company. Has recently moved there. 
he uh, just wanted to meet like-minded 40k players but he's pretty good i've played lewis before i'm sure I've, I've talked about he's one of my lockdown games i'm sure i talked about him on this podcast and he's a really very good player um, so um i've been playing uh, preparation games for a 2000 point competitive tournament <laughs> because i've never done a 40k tournament before certainly i've helped organize and run some different kinds of tournaments for different games i've participated in tournaments as well for the games but, but never 40k of any kind at all so uh, it's been interesting i can't say i'm enjoying it as much as narrative i'm longing to get back to uh, crusade type games and smaller type games as well it's fun putting lots of toys on the table but um, i seem to enjoy something slightly smaller than 2k but equally it's a good excuse to get my rainbow ways out and learn the knife edition rules and um, and, and focus down so <clears throat> i've gone for uh, not too much painting. I've pulled a lot of my historical army out and um, parts that I've painted during lockdown as well, and uh, getting them on the table. So it's, I've actually gone for a vanguard list uh, with uh, so uh, heavy, heavy as it were. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, if I'm going to tournament, let's be silly. I'm taking a squadron of predators and a whirlwind and a <laughs> thunderfire cannon and a devastator squad. <laughs> Plenty and of guns. Uh, yeah, but supported by a jumpy assault squad and a Terminator squad, uh, two tactical squads and a uh, Terminator captain, which I've uh, powered up to the chapter master. Fair enough. So it's um, it's a bit punchy. When it gets the, the alpha strike, it's not so bad, uh, depending on the terrain and all the rest of it. But um, the, the, the three predators are actually the um, the ones with the auto cannons rather than the ones with last cannons. Except I've also fitted two additional last cannons to each one as well. Of course. So they, they, yeah, I mean, you, you can't skimp. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's had mixed results to me. It's surprisingly mixed results. Um, I've won about half <laughs> my games, lost about half my games. And it's about keeping focused on, on victory points, of course, and the sec- choice of secondaries and all that kind of stuff, learning all your stratagems. I mean, stratagems are important for narrative games, but the victory points and the secondaries are, are a little bit more something I've not really got my head around before I started practicing. So I actually had five practice tournament games. Um, I've got a sixth one on Friday before we play, play the tournament on Saturday. Um, so my one on Saturday is against uh, my mate Luke's and Necrons, um, and he's painted them for this tournament. Uh, I won the first game we played. I don't know how we'll do this time because Luke is learning quite fast with his. Uh, but it's been fun. He, because he's painted them specifically for this, he's chosen his Necron, what's the dynasty colour scheme yeah. to be rainbow to take the Mickey out of me? <laughs> uh, so, would you say he has a phalanx of rainbow warriors? Uh, yeah, well, uh... almost. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's fun doing that kind of thing. Um, so um, that's something that brings a little bit of fun to it for us. Um, I played against Lewis as well. He's he he gave me a game to help me learn against his titan army which was um two ridiculous knights i can't even remember the names of them and about a thousand armages all right no there wasn't a set there were seven but it just felt that way there's <laughs> quite uh, a lot of armages yeah yeah and i just i just couldn't really do anything about that i think i got my tactics wrong i talked it through with him so i've learned a little bit uh, more about what i can do there which is fun and we've been playing the missions from for the three missions from the tournament pack, which are from the the, the Grand Tournament book. So it's it's fairly straightforward, not so much. I've had a couple of games against uh, Lee Soul Hunters. That I'm sure I mentioned before uh, these beautiful Primaris army uh, based on uh, 
Thunderwolfen's uh, prior, uh, concept for an army called Soul Haunters, yeah. where they've been out crusading and they're just beaten up and uh, scratched and dented and covered in trophies and skulls and chains. And you look at them and go, are they, are they chaos? But no, no, <laughs> apparently they are. They are legitimately uh, imperial. Well, they say so anyway. <laughs> as imperial yep. as the Night Lords were pre heresy. Yeah, absolutely. But Lee's done a fantastic job painting them as well. Um, they really do look beautiful. Um, I'll probably I'll probably give him a shout out um, later so people can find out where, where to see photos of uh, what he's painted. Um, but they, they are fantastically painted. And of course, he's, he's taking a little mickey out of us as well. One of his tanks is crushing uh, a Necron <laughs> under <it>. his tracks. <laughs> and one of, uh, one of the sergeants of one of his uh, bikers has got a, a Rainbow Warrior helmet on a trophy. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's been good. And then I had one game against Reg as well. Reg, uh, come and plays at our club, and um, he uh, very kindly brought out his Dark Angels, quite a Deathwing heavy uh, army against me. Uh, and I, I was being quite surprised about how punchy Firstborn Marines are now they've got two wounds. Because I do, with two term, two tactical squads, uh, an assault squad and a uh, Devastator squad, which I combat up, combat squad up. They, they cover a lot of area. And oh yeah, they're quite punchy. Um, they they really do hold their own. Uh, surprise, they look surprisingly well against uh, against well, an old Terminator force like. Uh, realistically, Avengers. it's a lot of firstborn units that still make up the hardest hitting assault units in the space yeah. marine, like, yeah, armory. Um, so it's not surprising that yeah, now now they can play with the big boys with their two wounds. It's still mm-hmm. quite a menace. Yeah, I mean, we say can play with the big boys, but it does look like that sometimes because, uh, of course, a lot of my, uh, about half my army is uh, the classic plastic RTBO ones. <laughs> but when you stand them next yeah. to a primary submarine, it is literally half the size. Nice. So um, I've always had a fondness for squats. I seem to have brought that into my space yeah. moves. Amazing. It's, I mean, I'm. I'm glad to hear that you know you're going to flex those um, like variety of gaming muscles, as it were, yeah. you know, to gain competitive play practice. But I also just find it hilarious the fact that of everyone we have on the on like on this show, our most prolific competitive player yeah. <laughs> is in fact the guy who likes to play <laughs> Rogue Trader and Second Edition 40k with his actual beaky Marines from back in the day, whenever he can. <laughs> But then one of our other uh, co-hosts does the uh, tacticals rules analysis stuff for Necromunda for an alternative podcast as well, right? This is true. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, that's what we always say, right? There's lots of different fun ways to play. It's worth seeing how other people play. I I don't think I'm going to play competitive stuff again after this tournament for quite a long time. Uh, But it's interesting to learn, see the different styles of play, understand how, how other people enjoy it. And if it's it's not for me, I'll just go back to playing more of the more of the crusade stuff. I definitely want to do more of that uh, and get some more of that out of the system again um, once once this is over. Yeah, I mean it's perfectly fair. You know, I, I worry sometimes that I come across as a bit disparaging of competitive play, but I, I, that's not the case at all. I know a lot of people enjoy it. I know it's a very accessible you know form of the game as well, and it's a completely valid way to play um, and. For me personally, you know, I've, I've been there in editions past, and I might be there again in editions in the future. Who knows? But right now, 
I'm very much sold on enjoying the many forms of like narrative play that there are to 40k. Yeah, and just yeah, because absolutely. just because there's a lot of coverage competitive elsewhere doesn't mean that <laughs> I dislike it. It's just absolutely. that I don't feel there's a need to go on about it verbatim on our show as well. You know, so uh, I just no, like to offer that variety for people. There's a lot of that that coverage elsewhere, like you said, and not so many folks talking about games in the way that we do. But it, it, like you know, if we've got regular listeners to to this podcast who like tournament play as well, you're just as welcome. We we focus a little bit more on a narrative play, but as you can hear, uh, we we do engage in other forms of play as well, and that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yep. To which point, I'm sure if you were to go check all your various podcasting outlets and other content channels. I'm sure if you were to search right now for Grand Tournament Pack 2021 or US Open events and blah 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 you'd probably find various different episodes by different content producers. But if you were to search for Flashpoint Charadon I feel you might find maybe one other show at best. (laughs) So (laughs) I think it's time. That's the previous one we did on it. Yes, <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't even. I I was thinking Masters of the Forge. I do know they occasionally do stuff like this as well, but there's not many out there, and I hadn't. I hadn't even contemplated our own previous shows. But yes, I think with that, it's a good time for us to transition over now to our spotlight topic for tonight: Flashpoint Charadon. Flash. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. You gets listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How you gets supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of yous without a proper paint job. So get your ugly hides to the paint boy over at Narrative Wah Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative Wah Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right you kids, get your loot in the truck and zog off to the ping boy. It better be ready and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them RedTube sent you. You might get some extra special. And we are back, guys. So 
this is actually going to be the second in our series of coverage for the Flashpoint Charadon um, content from White Dwarf. And as Dan so expertly alluded to in our previous segment, um, you can go check out our previous episode. Um, it was a couple of episodes back. I think it might be 25? Six. Or 26, one or the other. Yeah. Um, but basically, yeah, so for the last six months, White Dwarf has been covering all these extra sort of like Flashpoint war zone rules for fighting your battles inside the Charadon war zone. They've been very much intended to sort of be played alongside the mm. uh, the narrative supplements that have come out for Charadon. So part one, the Book of Rust, and the soon to be released part two, Book of Fire, and the mission packs that accompany those. So we've already done another episode previously on Plague Purge mission pack. Yep. We will be doing a future one in the near future um, on the <laughs> upcoming Amongst the Ashes, I believe it's called. Is yeah, I think so. the mission pack that's been announced. Um, and I think the intent from the White Dwarf team and from Games Workshop is that this you know six-month like collection of Flashpoint articles now are pretty much intended for... You know, adding to your games that you might play using these mission packs or narrative campaigns, and they're all really cool. And I have recently just finished reading the actual sort of like law content in the Book of Rust, and now a lot of these locations and locales make a lot more sense to me because I'm aware of where they are in the subsector and the sort of planets that they're relating to, and it's given me some more depth of understanding of what these war zones really represent. So uh, if you do get a chance, I advise, as always, going and reading the really cool world that comes in those narrative books, as well as the rules for which covenants and... Yeah, absolutely. And every, every one of these articles uh, in the White Doors is preceded by quite often by a story and certainly by uh, some, shall we call it, historical background about you know where they are and what's going on and which forces are, are battling and, and some descriptions of the kind of ground they're battling over. And, and sometimes there's also painting guides uh, as well, which is, is great to see. Yeah, they're, um, they're really good. They're good reads. I've been enjoying them. I mean, in all honesty, the Flashpoint series is the reason why for the first time in about 10 years, I resubscribed to White Dwarf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can I can totally understand that. And if anybody was to want to hear the first half of Flashpoint Karen, it's episode 24. I just checked. <laughs> wow, is it that long ago? <laughs> <laughs> there has been so much content covered for Charadon on this show. Yep. Wow. And realistically, we're only halfway through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get ready for Act Two. Absolutely, um, almost like it's almost like Games Workshop, but actually supporting narrative play or something. I know, right? It's funny. I was thinking about this recently when I was looking at my roadmap and how the show started out, which was honestly about two years ago now, um, more or less to the month. Um, and those first like 10, 12 episodes, I was just having to come up with a topic idea that I would then have to sort of research and expand upon to make an episode around because I wasn't doing the content trade of codex review, codex review, codex review that other podcasts and channels would do. But instead now, a year into ninth <laughs> edition, I genuinely feel like this show is kind of fitting more to that model and framework 
but we're just covering different content. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie, I think it's great. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I enjoyed, like, last episode, being able to talk about a more abstract topic, such as um, the Unbalanced Games. It was a really great conversation. But <laughs> at this point now, I feel like I don't have room in the schedule to go and look at, like, the strike, uh, the Planetfall. Um, not Planetfall. What's it called? I can't even remember, but things like Stronghold Assault and Planet Strike, that's it. Um, Rules from 8th yeah. edition, which were originally in the roadmap because they're alternate formats of gameplay. And I'm sure we'll get to them at some point. I've got plans to talk about things like Highlander and alternate formats. But right now, we've got another narrative campaign supplement coming out. We've got a new Flashpoint series starting up next month. And we've got a new mission pack on the way. Uh, and I that's think before. if anybody listening... I think I should say, if anybody is interested in talking about any of those items, um, I'm sure they'd uh, Tony would appreciate you reaching out to him uh, and arranging, because we're, we're happy to, to bring folks onto the podcast and talk about the things you're interested in playing as well, right, Tony? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the start of every episode, I invite people to get in contact if they want to join us on an episode, because I'm more than happy to talk about any subject matter or ideas that people have in mind. Um, I know... I know one sort of group member has previously played using like alternative activation for 40k and seeing how that affects the change and flow of the game. And that's something that I think would be a cool conversation to have at some point. But yeah, <laughs> I've still got a backlog of about eight different races that we need to cover <laughs> on Crusade before yep, we even get onto the ones that are still coming out. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's more codexes coming. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, right now, we've got plenty to keep us busy, which is why I'm thinking the format for the show is probably going to start adjusting into a shorter but more regular release schedule, which hopefully this might be the first instance of. So we'll see. You say but that. All that. but uh... Yeah, I know I say that, but we'll see. It's, as long as it doesn't span into a three and a half <laughs> epic, which... I think I say this should be the start of the <laughs> down series, but then in two episodes time we're gonna have Book of Fire and Book of Rust was like three and a half hours. So it, it did take you ages to collect the requisition points to build all of those admin weapons in the last episode. <laughs> I know, right. I loved that on Crusade segment, but it, it practically became the main topic of the episode without meaning to be. <laughs> but that was about Admech and uh, Admech are also the heart of uh, Wars on Karanon, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So tell us about the Flashpoint card part two. So previously, um, part one consisted of nine theatres of war. So each of the three issues it covered uh, featured um, three theatres of war each. Now, the latest three issues, the first two follow that same pattern, so we've got a total of six new theatres of war for fighting in different Charidon war zones, and the latest and final issue of instalment in this particular Flashpoint series would actually give us a almost like a mini mission focus to talk about because it is exactly that. It's, um, it's a unique mission to play. Um, it's actually quite simple, but also quite clever, and I like it. Um, so that's going to be a fun sort of bit to touch on at the end of this. Um, and then each of those 
Faces of War also comes with a selection of unique crusade relics and battle traits that units can earn when they win victory in those battle zones. So you can find more bones. <laughs> Funnily enough, and that teeth. was the first thing I did every month when I got a new issue. I had a look at what the rewards and relics were, and I was like, are there any more bone-themed ones? Any more <laughs> mystical bones? <laughs> but unfortunately, on this occasion, I don't think there were. In the Grim Darkness of the Far Future, there are only skulls. Yeah. <laughs> well, so to that end, um, as we did before, uh, we've got a little list of all of these existing war zones, um, or these theatres of war even, and uh, we're just going to pick a few. Now, there's one or two in particular I do want to talk about, but we'll just also pick out a couple at random in addition. So, just to give you more for Dan's benefit and the listeners' benefit, this is a little rundown of all of them sort of by name. So we've got the Mirror Plains of Duos, the Phyrios Extraction Plants, the Septios Dry River Valley, the Battery World Omex Magnifica, the Sore Afflicted Minisferum, and the Ferrovigilum Astropathic Relay. <laughs> All right, then. So, let's um, say the first one that I do want to talk about because I just think it's a really cool concept is the Mirror Planes of Duos. So, the little summary here is that this is a Zinchian warp skate, uh, skate, a Zinchian warp scape with reality warping influences. So, do you remember when in the Book of Rust we talked about the um, ascendancy of entropy um, table, yep. which I basically summarized as this will be great for playing in a Nurgle demon world or anywhere where basically Nurgle is in ascendance and you're fighting in its demonic influences? Yes. This is almost like a Zinchian equivalent. It's a little scaled right. down by comparison, but it's the same idea. You know, this is a uh, a Zinchian demon world. <laughs> um, funnily enough, in the law, this is actually a world which was previously conquered by um, the Thousand Sons and Zinch cultists prior to Typhus's invasion of the sector, and basically part of the Death Guard forces passing by just couldn't resist the urge to have a scrap with the followers of Zinch. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't even really have much of an influence on the larger narrative other than the fact that this was a Zinch-held planet and the Death Guard just felt the need to flex. Nice. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's really cool. It's got some pretty wild effects. So... Um... As with most of these, we've got a designer's note as well. If playing using this theatre of war, we recommend that the ground level of the battlefield is fairly flat, with few hills, and that the terrain features consist of remnants of the imperial world that existed before the servants of Zinch worked their warping magics. When fighting a battle on the Mirror Plains, the following rules apply. Null nodes. Over the bizarre magic-formed landscape, Small nodes of reality still exist. All are highly fragile. Before the battle, after players have chosen their deployment zones, starting with the attacker, each player takes it in turns to set up one null node marker on the battlefield. 
and if you're playing Onslaught mission, then each player sets up two markers instead. Each node cannot be placed within six inches of a battlefield edge or 12 inches of another marker. So typically most games, there's going to be two of these null node markers like on the battlefield. Right. Each marker has the following ability. Null node, aura. While a unit is within six inches of this marker, it has the warp grounded keyword. And, okay. and that's it, which we'll get to in a second. But basically, yeah, like it's one of these few patches of not crazy warped reality. <laughs> it's you know, yeah. a, a, it's the eye of the storm spot. Yeah, just a little uh, refuge of reality. Units within six inches of that uh, have the actually it's not so bad keyword. Basically, <laughs> yes. Um. And that comes into play with the next uh, rule for this uh, for this theatre of war, which is twisting mirrors. The reflections in the mirrored ground do not always obey the laws of reality. Instead, they are affected by trans-dimensional, spatial, and focal distortions. At the start Obviously. of the first battle round, yeah, as is the will of Zinch. At the start of the first battle round, the attacker rolls one d six. And consults the table below to determine the effects. So I'm going to go through all these because these are hilarious. So on a one, harsh clarity. Each time a model in this unit makes a ranged attack that targets an enemy unit that does not have the warp grounded keyword, that is basically the concept of most of these effects. So yep. if you're shooting at something which is not in the not-so-bad zone, yep. then in this instance... You can ignore any or all hit modifiers. Okay. Um, on a two, warped refractions, same thing. Um, target a unit that's not in the warp grounded zones. That model does not require line of sight to the target. And if that model does not have line of sight, subtract one from that attack's hit roll. So you can shoot things you can't see <laughs> at minus one to hit. Nice. That's, that's anywhere on the battlefield, so long as they're not in one of these two locations that are safe from that effect. Uh, intertwined realities. Each time a model in this unit makes a ranged attack that targets an enemy unit that does not have the warp ground of the keyword, an unmodified wound roll of a six, that target suffers a number of mortal wounds equal to the damage characteristic of the attack, and then the attack sequence ends. Okay. So on a six, you're just auto-ignoring armor and you're inflicting your maximum damage as mortals, which obviously can spill over then as well. Yep. <laughs> your last cannon is going to be freeming multiple guys. Ugh. Nice. On a four, depth translation. Same thing when you target a model that's with a range attack that's not grounded. The target counts as being within half range. For example, if that model has made an attack with a rapid fire weapon, it can make double the number of attacks due to it being half range. So even if it isn't actually in half range, you get your half range bonuses. Fair enough. On a five, focal sharpening. Each time a model in this unit makes a range attack that targets an enemy unit that does not have the walk through a keyword, the target does not receive the benefits of cover. And on a six, soul sight. When you target a unit with a range attack that's not grounded, add one to that attack's wound roll. So both armies when making ranged attacks against any target that is not on one of these two null zone points 
you're basically getting some sort of like game wide bonus to that ranged attack. Could be tasty. And, yeah, and this is a a, a one time d six roll on this table at the start of the game, and then that's in effect for the game until some warp altering effects come into play. <laughs> so we then have altering perception. Psychic powers can reshape, reorientate reflections and refractions. Units from your army can attempt the following action. It's a psychic action, altering perception, warp charge 6. One psychic unit from your army can attempt to perform this psychic action during your psychic phase. If successful, the current twisting mirrors effect stops being active. Roll 1d6 to determine the new active effect using the table below. Uh, table above even. If the result of the psychic test was 9 or more, you select the new active twisting mirror effect instead of rolling for it. Nice. So you're now introducing a, you know, a, a battle of psychers mechanic where if both sides have got psychers, they're both going to be attempting psychic actions to manipulate the warp altering effects to be their most beneficial at any given time. And then... Finally, but not even finally, we've just got um, well, more or less. But so the last part of this is shattering the pattern. Should a null node be destroyed, the power of Zinchia magics flow freely where it once was. So, uh, the uh, units from your army can attempt the following action: shattering the pattern. At the end of your movement phase, one unit from your army that is within three inches of an undestroyed null node can start to perform this action. This action is completed at the end of the turn, and when it is completed, the null marker is destroyed. Move it from the battlefield. Mm-hmm. The current twisting mirrors effect stops being active. Roll one d six to determine a new effect using the table above. Nice. So you shatter the safety net, and you end up re-spinning the current effect. And then finally. Because Zinch loves his tables. Apparently. Oh, you, you, you'll love this. So we've got flickering reality. In some areas, the winds of change flow and flicker more strongly than others. Before the battle. This is one of those instances where it's a D3 table and then a special rule is in effect for that game. Okay. So it provides like you know, some replayability to this theater of war with a slight twist each time, potentially. <laughs> the best part is to bear in mind that this is the number one result in a table. Unstable vortexes. At the start of each battle round, the attacker rolls 1d3 and consults the table to the right to determine at what distance <laughs> models are considered to be within range of an objective marker for the purposes of controlling it. So it's a d3 table within a d3 table, which is very cinch. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, and the d3 results are uh, on, on a 1 you have an objective control range of six inch rather than three. On a mm-hmm. two, it's the normal three inches, and on a three, you had to be within one inch of the center of an objective marker to control it. And that is objective markers, not these null nodes. That's just your standard mission markers yeah. for whatever mission you happen to be playing. Um, but if you didn't roll on the table in a table, and on the initial <laughs> table, you just rolled a table result of two. <laughs> Um, you would instead have the 
in substantial existence. At the start of the battle, start of any attacker, each player selects one objective marker on the battlefield. Those objective markers cannot be controlled until battle round three. Okay. So two of them are going to be out of action until mid-game. You can't do anything with them. You can't interact oh. with them. They just haven't. They haven't popped into reality yet. And if you're playing a game that has four or more objective markers, each player selects um, one objective marker on the battlefield. Oh, no, sorry. In the standard battle, if there are more than four objective markers on the battlefield, starting with the attacker, each player selects one objective marker on the battlefield. Those cannot be controlled until battle round four. Okay, so you're both picking a objective marker regardless, but if there's four or more markers, then they don't become available until turn four rather than turn three. Fair enough. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And Zinch's final parting gift to us in this somewhat crazy future of war is the sorceress influence. If you rolled a D if you rolled a three on this table, objective markers gain the following ability, sorceress influence. While a psycho unit is in range of its objective marker, each time a psychic test is taken for it, if the result is nine or more, that psychic power cannot be denied. Oof. <laughs> I like this. It's, it's very, very uh, much a. Uh, we've talked about uh, psycho heavy uh, battle zones and war zones in the past. Uh, but this theatre of war is really. If you've got a friend and between you, one of you's got uh, a Zinch army, the other one's got a Nurgle army. I, I guess you could also do it with, with Corn and Slanish as well. It's just. This just set of rules gives us a real. Way you could build a whole campaign around this because it'd be different every time, and then it interacts with a mission that you choose as well. And um, just as sort of a, like a mad magic infused demon world sort of theater of war, it's fantastic. Yeah, like I'm genuinely waiting for some future publications that essentially have a corn and sunesh based theaters of war, and then the idea of being able to run a campaign where you sort of use all of the god based realm effects to influence who's in ascendancy, which armies are fighting, what demon world you're on, and so on, I think would just be really cool for a sort of like chaos versus chaos, free-for-all campaign. Yeah, Just roll on a table within a table within a table. It's all wheels within wheels within wheels. Yes. That's, that's, that's the way. <laughs> it's the ninefold path. Huh. Um, so yeah, let's, I just... I just thought it was really cool, this idea that it's basically the Zinchian demon world and reality just does not behave the way you expect it to unless you're in these two very small parts of stable reality, which then both you and your opponent can mess with and destroy anyway. Yeah. And it's a brilliant one that you can play without needing anything complicated in terms of like battlefield setup or markers. You just need two two special markers, that's it. You can just do it with coins or dice or anything. Possibly little um, warp flames. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was basically um, one of the ones I just definitely wanted to highlight. But um, from our little prescribed list, is there yep. um, one that you would like to have us delve into, Dan? Uh, well, how about that astropathic relay? <laughs> Sounds interesting so, to me. 
Actually, before I forget, we wanted to talk about the reward for winning the game in the Zinchian plane, didn't we? Oh, oh. Because um, that's the format we used before, so we'll stick to it again, and then is, we'll go to the Astropathic Relay. Is it a table? No. Ah. <laughs> Unusually. It's a Artificer Relic. Oh. Um, so it is, if you were to win the battle on the Mirror Planes and you can upgraded a character with a relic, you could choose the reality shard. Uh, the reality mm. shard gives the bearer glimpses of potential futures, allowing them to plan ahead for battles to come. At the start of the battle, select one stratagem. Once per battle round, when you use that stratagem, if the bearer is on the battlefield, reduce the cost of that stratagem by 1 CP. Note that the CP cost is only reduced by 1 CP for that use of the stratagem, any future uses of it cost a normal amount. But obviously that would be within the same battle round. Because in another battle round you could do it again. Just for one. Okay. So for example it was command reroll. You could do hmm. it for zero once in that battle round. You could still do more command rerolls in the same battle round. But they all cost you one CP. Yeah. But the next round you would get to do a command reroll for zero again if you wanted. Pretty solid. It's uh yeah makes makes stratagems cheaper. Pretty straightforward in all honesty for the relic reward for that uh, particular feature of war. Yep. So, astropathic relay, as you say. So this is another somewhat psychic based um, feature of war. So we've got. Uh, Want to read this one out? Yes, go on, go on, Dave. You read this one. The Ferrovigilum Astropathic Relay possesses powerful psychic infrastructure to enable its astropaths to send messages across the galaxy. The relay is surrounded by a roiling nexus of psychic energy that combatants can tap into if they have the skills to do so. Um, so this is, uh, you know, uh, playing around one of these psychic nexus nodes, and there's a couple of um, uh, different rules that, that come into play when that happens. Um, so the first is, uh, will it be in a communication nexus uh, that can enhance your army's abilities to coordinate and plan better? So before the battle, after determining the attacker and defender, the attacker rolls a d3 and consults. Can you guess what they consult? Uh, oh, is it a table? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hey. <laughs> so in a one, uh, it's uh, infused influence. You get to add three to the range of all your abilities, up to a maximum of 12 inches. Nice. Uh, and um, on a two, it's coordinated strategy. Once per battle round, when a player uses a core stratagem, they can choose to reduce the CP cost by one. Um, the cost is only reduced by one for that stratagem, and any future use of it costs an old amount, so you can only use that once. And um, on the third one, Miraculous Portents, uh, players can use the command reroll, and strateg- command reroll stratagem twice per phase, uh, which is uh, normally you can use the stratagem once, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, being able to do like two command rerolls in the shooting phase, mm. you know, or the combat phase is interesting. But but the effect that's rolled applies to either side and lasts for the whole. Yeah, yeah it's one of those game wide effects. Yeah. So you can just shake things up a little bit. That's quite nice. Uh, the second effect for the theatre war is uh, psychic conduits. Uh, psychic conduits dot for a vigilum surface. Battling armies can tap into the energies flowing around them to boost their psychic output and projection. So before the battle, again, after attack and defender, the attacker rolls a d3 and consults a table. 
<laughs> so on a one, uh, the, there's a psychic choir objective marker gains the following abilities, uh, which is a psychic choir aura ability. And when a psychic unit is within the range of this objective marker, each time that unit would suffer perils, uh, roll a d6 on a four, it doesn't. Uh, psychic dampening, uh, objective markers gain the psychic dampening ability, which is when a unit is within range of the objective marker, each time a model that would lose a wound in a psychic phase as a result of a psychic power, roll a d6 and the four, the plus the wound is not lost. Or the third option is psychic battery. And again, objectives gain psychic battery. When a psychic unit, psychic unit is within range of this objective marker, each time that unit manifests smite, uh, add one to the number of mortal wounds the enemy suffers. Ooh. Yep. And then the last uh, effect for the whole battle is uh, actually uh, an action that can be taken. So uh, any uh, unit from your army can attempt the following psychic action. So it's one psychic yeah. from your army can attempt to perform the psychic action during the psychic phase. If successful, you gain a CP and the warp charge is seven. So um, Nice. Yeah. So it's like a psychic-driven command uh, improvement uh, sort of war zone. Yeah, it's funny because I think this is one of the few examples I've seen ever, really, where it's a future of war that basically just has beneficial effects. There's nothing really that's harming you or impeding you. It's just that it's doling out those enhancements evenly to both players. Well, you say that. Well, so long uh, as both players have psychers to benefit. Them. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. some armies that just don't have psychers, so... Uh... Uh, yeah, like my competitive army I described earlier in this podcast, uh, I have no psychers in there, um, but that's... Uh, Bad luck, Necrons. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, so like you say that, but obviously all three of the Nexus effects don't relate explicitly to psychers. That's CP reduction, yep. multiple uses of a stratagem, and aura yeah. increases. Your psychic conduits... Um, the fact that they prevent perils doesn't bother you if you don't have psychers. Um, the defense against psychic wounds is the second one, and then the third one is the one where you would get to do one more mortal off. Yeah, that. and then I so I guess really the only lopsidedness to it, if one army has psychers and the other doesn't, is the fact that one player can perform a psychic action of 7 plus to gain a CP. Yeah. But then inherently that prevents them from casting powers with yeah. that psychic. So it's, it's basically just not, like... Not super like reliable, is it? Yeah, I mean, that's not going to be hugely influential if you say playing Tau versus Thousand Sons. I mean, it's yeah. going to have an effect more so than if it was, I don't know, Guard versus Orcs. Maybe, you know, but I do think it's funny that, like I say, it's all kind of like benefits in this war zone. There's nothing hazardous, really, which is very unusual. Yeah. Um, and it's just how you and your army can manipulate and get the most out of those enhancements um, in the right situations to try and swing the battle in your favor. So it's a, a different kind of generalmanship. You know, a lot of the time it's avoiding the hazardous explosive objective marker or the damaging battlefield effect or the encroaching flow of lava. <laughs> no comment. Yeah. So it's a, it's a surprisingly friendly 
creature of war. <laughs> um, and to that end, do you want to tell us about the battle trait in this case, Dave, that you yeah, get for absolutely. winning in this scenario? Yeah, so obviously battle traits are available. Uh, well, the three battle traits are available. The battery will... Uh, no, this is the Ferrovigilant Astropathic Relay. It is. Touched by fate. Uh, constantly being in the presence of powerful psychic energies has a strange effect. It's, it feels like half a sentence, but that's the, the flavour text. Um, once per battle, you can use the command reroll stratagem to reroll a roll or test made for this unit or model it contains without spending any CP. So they're just a bit lucky, or a bit nice. organised, or a bit just a bit better. Yep. It's just cool that once per battle, that unit can basically use command reroll for free. Yep. That's cool. Yeah, but it's still using the command reroll stratagem, so it you is, can't use yes. it for the rest of your army. Unless you know you've got a nexus effect that allows you to use it twice per phase. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, free um, CP, effectively. Pretty good. Yep. Yep. So, uh, Dan, do you want to find us a possible... You know, that feels very much like the leader skill in Blood Bowl. Yes. It does, actually, yes. Um, assuming it hasn't changed in the latest edition, but yeah, basically, oh, yeah, okay. this unit <laughs> provides a bonus reroll. Yep. Sorry, that just suddenly occurred to me. <laughs> no, it's funny when you see parallels between game systems like that, isn't it? You know, where yeah. you, like, you can see how something's pulling from another... Uh, in subtle influences in game design, but it's really, it's, it's really nice to see. It's good. Um, so Dan, do you want to pick what will probably be a less friendly and more hazardous um, feature of war for us to discuss next? Uh, sure. Um, how about that uh, dry river valley then? <laughs> yeah. Like so this, <laughs> this is the other one that I particularly wanted to talk about. I mean. The the note you've put in the in our uh, show notes says uh, dam destruction and flooding. Yes, which is as in the destruction of a dam, not cursed destruction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, uh, if I'm honest, that doesn't sound very dry. <laughs> well, no. it starts out dry. It definitely does not finish dry. <laughs> Mm. And, and talking of uh, analogies, this one, and I'm sure we'll we'll see it as we, we start to talk about it, but it reminds me very much of the, the Vigilus uh, battle zone where the orc, uh, orcs would shoot, the, the cult of speed would shoot across the battlefield. Yes, that is, yeah. that's one of the ones I've not had a chance to try yet, but I really want to. Even though it's years old now, I still think it's a very unique design. And <laughs> you're right, I think this one is the next closest thing we've seen to that concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just think this is a... Normally do I think it's very neat and cool um, because it's a very conceptual idea that will translate well to a tabletop game. I also think it, it would look really nicely when played out on anything like the old Realm of Battle tiles where you've kind of got a physical valley on the tabletop. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so this is the Septios Dry River Valley. Many battles on Septios took place in the dry valleys left behind after vast rivers were dammed. The forces of chaos went to great lengths to destroy these dams and inflict untold devastation. If playing using this theatre of war, we recommend that the battlefield is populated largely with ruins and wood terrain features to represent, you know, a, a valley, basically. <laughs> 
When fighting a battle in the Dry River Valley, the following rules apply. Floodwaters. Before the battle, after determining who the attacker and defender will be, the attacker rolls a 1d6 and consults the diagram, not the table. <laughs> oh, they got us the there. It's a diagram that looks like any sort of management coaching technique. In that it's, it's, it's a, a picture of a board split into four boxes uh, with equal lines down the short and long, long centres. Oh, I don't know. That sounds a bit like a table to me. <laughs> Maybe a two-by-two two table. Yeah. Uh, but it's a consult of a diagram to the right to determine the centre line of the valley. So, um, I mean, obviously, if you were playing with a sculpted board that physically had a sort of valley to it, I would probably suggest that you just use the line of the valley from your board to predetermine this. But basically, it's a D6 roll. Uh, one, two, three, it's from long table edge to long table edge. Four, five, six, it's from short to short. But in either case, it's the center line between whichever sides you've rolled. Okay. Damage to the dam. The more damage the dam takes, the more likely it is to collapse. At the start of the battle, the dam has zero damage points, as it has not yet sustained any damage. As the battle progresses and the dam is weakened, this number will increase. The more damage points the dam occurs, the more likely it is to burst and more serious the flood will be. At the end of each battle round, the dam occurs three D3 damage points. That is, D3 damage points. I feel like I said three D3 then when I tried to catch myself. (laughs) It is not, it is a single D3. When playing a game using this feature of war, both players have access to the following action. Sabotage. While battle rages, those wishing to destroy the dam dispatch forces to sabotage it. At the end of each battle round, starting with the attacker, each player can select one unit from their army that is in strategic reserves to damage the dam. For each unit that does so, if that unit has a power rating of 5 or less, the dam occurs D3 damage points. Otherwise, the dam occurs D6 damage points. Ooh. So Interesting. It more damage points if it, you know, you've got a more powerful unit. That's, that's quite nice. And what I think is really fun about this is the fact it says both players have access to this action, and it is starting with the attacker. Each player can select blah, 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 blah. So... The defender, if they want, can also decide, you know what, to hell with it, I'm going to try and crack the dam as well. (laughs) Nice. If they actually think that ultimately flooding the valley is going to do more damage to the foe than keeping the dam intact, they can also attempt to incur these damage points. But the attacker gets first dibs, you know, adding to that total. So then, dam bursting. When the dam bursts, warriors of both sides are caught in the floodwaters. From the second battle round onwards, at the start of each battle round, if the dam has not already burst, the attacker rolls 1d6 and consults... Can you guess it? Um, A chart. It's a table. (laughs) Um, Opposite to see if the dam bursts. So, um, if it's got not six points... um, of damage, the dam will burst on a 5+, plus, and any unit within 6 inches of the centre line of the valley is caught in the flood. If it's got between 7 to 12 damage points on a 4+, plus, any unit within 9 inches will get caught, and if it's got 13 or more damage points, on a 3+, plus, it'll burst, and will catch every unit within 12 inches, 
the sense of mm-hmm. family. So more damage, a bigger breach, bigger flood water. And that's, you know, within 12 inches or within nine inches or within six inches, that's, that you know, 12 inches either side. So it can be most of the board, yeah. a lot of damage. That is a significant chunk of the board. When the dam bursts, any unit, excluding aircraft units, that are caught by the floodwaters, so the D3 mortal wounds, and must remain stationary during their next movement phase. If the dam does not burst by the start of the fourth battle round, it automatically bursts. <laughs> Excellent. So you know it's coming. It's unavoidable. It's going to happen. And like Dave was saying, it's both sides of that center line. So if it is going to be a 12-inch line, then that's 24 inches down the center of the board. <laughs> that's going to get swept by this line of smiting floodwaters. And you might think that was it once the dam had burst. Obviously... It's going to change the topography of the land, <laughs> is a, a, a dam burst. So, after the fact, you then have to deal with the mud lake rule. Once the floodwaters have subsided, mud lakes are left behind in their wake. After the dam has burst, the following rules take effect subtract one from the movement characteristic of all models, except those that can fly. Models do not receive the benefits of cover from obstacle terrain features because they've all been swept away. <laughs> nice. Um, and in the movement phase, each time a vehicle or monster unit is selected to move, excluding those that can fly, roll 1d6, subtracting 1 if the unit has the Titanic keyword. On a 1, the unit is stuck in the mud and can <laughs> only be selected to remain stationary that turn. An interesting point there is, you know, the you know, if they can fly, they can avoid the mud lake. But actually, flyers, with the exception of aircraft, don't avoid the dam burst effects. Yeah, well, I mean, if you've seen any sort of film or even yeah, yeah, yeah. like animated thing with a dam bursting, it's like a tidal wave, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice. Absolutely. It's, you know, a couple of stories of buildings high. <laughs> so those Tau battle suits are not going to be getting out of reach of it. You know, maybe the mantas overhead are not going to be affected, but you know, other stuff is going to find it hard to get out of the way in time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is one of those ones where again, it is a it's a damaging effect battle zone. But like the speedwire, it's a one and done in terms of damage. It's not like a persistent or environmental effect you have to tiptoe around. It's just a you, the clock's ticking, and then when it happens, everyone gets a big hit. Yeah, I like that. I like um, that sort of uh, waiting for it to happen. Yeah, and while it's a small thing, I think the one of the most intriguing game design concepts in here is the use of units in strategic reserve to affect the dam. So there's kind of like yeah. there's a consideration for off the tabletop units affecting something that is also itself off the tabletop. Yeah. And it's, it's something we don't see very much, isn't it? Yeah, because I mean, putting a big unit of terminators in strategic reserve, we find that's going to net you probably d6 damage worth of points. But can you imagine being a guard army that's got a full platoon worth of men? <laughs> it's like, oh, I, I could quite happily put 250 points worth of my force in strategic reserve, but in fact, that's like six units of infantry. 
we're all going to do yeah. D3 damage each. It, it, well, you can only choose one unit to, to damage the dam. But, oh, um, oh, did I misread that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, select one unit from her army. Oh, you're right. Ah, oh, well. Just make it a big unit but, then. But the... Um, it, 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 it doesn't need to be a big unit of Terminators. A normal Terminator squad is nine power level. Fair enough then. So, you know, if you're willing to hold... I mean, it does mean you're holding them in strategic reserve and not deep strike. So when they do arrive, yes, yep. they're going to be coming on a table edge. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, not in the you're... teleportarium. They're on a dam. Well, yes, it would be, <laughs> yeah. be a bit weird. How are they going to affect it from the teleportarium? <laughs> I mean... On the flip side of that, I like the idea that like orcs could just contribute. Here's thirty points of grots, and they're just going to spend the whole game just bashing the dam until it pops. <laughs> yeah, because it's going to cost you CP to put them into strategic reserve. Mm-hmm. True, well, but I mean, uh... again, if you want to just put one unit in, it's probably only going to cost you one CP. Yeah, it's it's yeah. one CP for up to nine power level. Yeah, something like that. So you could get that D six for. For one CP, effectively. Yeah. But yeah, I just I, I think it's a really unique idea um, that actually a strategic reserve unit has the ability to influence the battle yeah. while not being there yet because it's off fighting a other conflict elsewhere on route. I definitely think if you're playing that scenario, you can um, uh, just remove all the barricades and stuff when the when the dam bursts. Yeah, that too. I mean, if they're not providing cover, they're not having that much of an effect on the game anymore. So you can probably just take them away, sweep them, sweep them away, or, or have them in a, a thematic pile at the far end of the. Table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think this is possibly an interesting testing ground for sort of rules that expand upon strategic reserves because things like flashpoints and white dwarf as a whole quite often be a place that the game designers feel they can experiment with new ideas. Like I could imagine something like this style of effect being something that the, the new Gene Stealer cult in 9th edition might have. Ooh, maybe. Where if they opt to put units in strategic reserve, they get to use some variety of special rule or influence or effect. I mean, you could even do things like if a unit's in strategic reserve, you can do things like a minimum, a minimal like mortal wound bomb effect or something because they're off field firing artillery or something. It'd be a good rule for like a sniper, like a, the Vindicare or something. Yeah, well, while they're approaching the battlefield proper, they're picking some targets on the way in because they can outrange the conflict yeah. represented by the tabletop. I mean, we could go too far and suggest that the guard be allowed to deploy a basilisk squadron off the board and bombard everything. <laughs> Oh, that, yeah, that would be cool. If like your basilisks, <laughs> if placed in strategic reserve, they could actually shoot on the like as <laughs> on in the shooting phases in which they are, but a minus one to hit. You know, because they're firing indirect slash they're on the move. <laughs> That'd be that would cool. Be hilarious. <laughs> but anyway, if you do win the battle in the um the Flood Valley, then mm-hmm. you um, you can pick up an Artificer Relic for your trouble, which would be the Shifting Effigy. Um, a long hidden within the river's waters and now washed up by the flood, this relic once belonged to ancient Zinchian worshippers. 
Such is its power that the bearer can walk through walls. No. This is very much one of those um, relics that mimics the phasing effects of Necrons. Each time the bearer makes a normal move, advance move, fallback move, or makes a charge move, until the move is finished, it can move horizontally through models and terrain features. It cannot finish a move on top of another model or headspace. Well, fair enough. It's an a neat effect, but it, it doesn't quite fit thematically. It's the first one we've come across that doesn't really fit thematically with the, the theatre of war quite so much. Well, I mean, it's funny that in this particular issue, White Dwarf, all three of its theatres of war have relics that are basically related to Chaos Worshippers. Um, <laughs> the one we haven't talked about is a nine-pronged sigil, which um, basically allows a psyche to... Uh, each time they manifest a psychic power on nine or more, sacred number of zinch, Yep. Plus this unit within 12 of us D3 mortal wounds, which Oof. is any power and obviously basically sends a smite into 2D3 power. Yep. Yep. So I think this is more about the seeding of the Zinchian cults across the Charidon sector that happened to be in these particular regions. Um, yeah. So th- there's kind of like a larger arc reason for why it's Zinchian stuff as opposed to just the fact that Zinch particularly likes that damn <laughs> At one point in the past, yeah, no, I understand. It just um, uh, it's not quite as closely knit as some of the other stuff we've looked at. It's not magic bones from the bone field, is it? Uh, well, it, it's just a shifting effigy. It doesn't say say what it is, so maybe it is bones. I suppose it could be <laughs> some zinch bones. Um, and then uh, I think that's probably a good selection there of the theatres of war, like I say. Yep. If you're interested in knowing more about the uh, Fyros extraction plants, the battery world, or the sore-afflicted Minisferums, then, you know, pick up your white dwarfs <laughs> because they're <laughs> in there. And um, there's some you know, more cool theatres of war to fight over. But in this particular publication, or this particular series even, um, the last issue actually didn't give us three more theatres of war. It gave us a mission to play. Oh. If at all you've managed to get your hands on the Book of Rust or the Plague Purge mission pack, you've been having to flick through it. You'll probably noticed um, on several occasions there's been lots of fancy, nice artwork. Well, not artwork even. Lots of fancy uh, photography of this industrial like oil rig. Um, board that they've obviously built at Warhammer World for showcasing this sort of famous Charadon conflict on the ocean world of Fathom. So it's all these you know gantries and walkways over and very nicely sculpted sort of like water ocean floor. And it's it's kind of been the the poster child for the Charadon conflict so far in the miniature um, imagery that we've seen, and. This basically is the mission that's been custom designed to play on that sort of environment. So, in simple terms, the Strike Force mission, A Fell Tide, is basically a fresh take on the floor is lava scenario. How, how do you mean by that? So, uh, basically, the idea is that it's a mission that you play where 
the actual ground level of the board is considered impassable, and therefore the entire battle is going to be fought on terrain, like on the terrain pieces. And in this case, the idea is that it would be this large interconnecting network of gantries and walkways. Right. Um, so think all your sector mechanicus, um, like walkways and platforms and um, sort of rigging and all the rest of it like that. It doesn't even have to be very vertically high because I know a lot of you know, the big fancy boards people work with these kits have three, four, five you know floors of elevation to them. It doesn't have to be that. It could just be one floor of elevation, but it's either the like full five inches off the ground that the kit is, or as this custom board's been made, they've kind of been like cut to be only like two inches maybe of the surface. And right. If you were to create this yourself, you know, to play as a, a game, I would suggest basically just using, you know, cut out some cardboard. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Get yourself some cereal boxes or something or anything else. I'm sure there'll be people out there that'll have more high-end concepts for a budget version of this. But basically, <laughs> you want to be creating a, a walkway overlay to put over your battle map. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, so the, the entire battlefield is played on uh, limited space. Yes. If you're old like me, you could use the old Necromunda terrain, yes. if you still have it. Yes, because those are only, I think, three inches tall as opposed to five. Something like that. Yeah, or, and obviously they had all these cardboard um, levels and cutouts and things. Always and one, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost kind of like imagine a, a Necromunda-style board, but not so many levels. And instead, over a six by four foot table or equivalent for night condition. Yeah. Um. So, in terms of the actual sort of like mission itself, the uh, deployment is pretty straightforward. It's just a a short table edges um, set up with a twenty four inch no man's land, and there's nothing fancy about the deployment map uh, in those terms. Um. So the actual mission briefing. Uh, Typhus's orbital bombardments of the Charadon sector unleashed deadly warp-borne contagions. On the wave-tossed world of Fathom, the defenders managed to intercept many of the Death Guard's disease-laden munitions, but several debris splinters made it to the surface. Lodged in the superstructures of huge extraction rigs, uh, vicious battles over the control of these infectious fragments were fought, as the... uh, Tumultuous. God, can't say that. How's that pronounced, Dave? Tumultuous. Tumultuous. Yep. There yep. you go. <laughs> Vicious battles over the control of these infectious fragments were fought as the tumultuous seas battered the gantries. So yeah, it's it's battle on a big industrial oil rig, basically. Right. But the idea where you're at water level almost, as opposed to being on this. You know, nebulous high platform where you're fighting over an indefinite drop. You're actually fighting above the waves. Yeah. So the mission rules. Fallen debris splinters. At the start of the first battle round, starting with the player who has the first turn, players alternate placing objective markers on the battlefield one at a time until each has placed three objective markers. So pretty standard six objective markers. Each time a player places a marker, it must be wholly within 18 inches of the center line um, wholly within that player's territory, 
So basically, it's more or less going to be in the no man's land and a little bit of your planet zone. It must be on the water, directly below a walkway. Not within three inches of any battlefield edge and not within 12 inches of any other marker. So basically, you've not got markers floating out in the water like boys. Like, they are all located directly below one of the walkways. Okay. Um, tumultuous seas. The water sections of the battlefield are considered impassable. No model can be set up on, move across, or end a move on these areas that do not... Uh, sorry. Or end a move on these areas. This does not apply to models that can fly. Which is funny, because in the actual pictures, there's clearly the um, ADMEC transport vehicle uh, moving across the surface of the water. Because it's a hovercraft, <laughs> so it's amphibious, yeah. but I don't believe it has the fly keyword. <laughs> no, it does not. But it would be fun to allow that particular vehicle, and yep. for those veteran guard players, chimeras, yep. to actually traverse the water, since they are, in fact, aquatic in narrative. <laughs> Um, yeah, then you get into an argument about gravity effect vehicles and all the rest of it, right? Well, I don't think a repulsor is going to find much purchase above the waves. I think that is probably going to sink. <laughs> yep. yep. But yes, there's debates but, over. You know, you know, anything you agree to do is totally cool. Yeah. Um, anything that you feel feels appropriately could move across an open sea. Then sure. Um, then we have rogue waves. From the third battle round onwards, at the start of each battle round, if one player has more victory points than the other, roll 1d3 to randomly determine one of the objective markers in that player's territory. That objective marker falls beneath the waves and cannot be controlled this battle round. Okay. Um, and then the... Victory conditions are literally just secure at all costs. So each player scores five points at the end of a you know, round if they control one, two, three, or more than uh, objective markers than their opponent. Classic so all, match play all, style stuff. Yeah, just all about holding those objective markers. Uh, and then finally, um, there's an endgame objective of Warlord Assassination where uh, you score 10 victory points if the enemy Warlord was destroyed. Ah, slay the warlord, classic. And that and that's it, like Fair in enough. terms of the mission mechanics. Because really, the thing that makes this mission fancy is the nature of the board setup. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not so much like the floor is lava in terms of like an encroaching lava field or certain sections of the board are cut off as impassable in like there's a vigilance mission where some of the uh, like if the board is divided into its classic six tiles like two or three of them are considered impassable um there's the plague purge mission where you're fighting over the bridge and like some sections of the center are considered impassable this is just if you're not on the gantries and on the walkways it's considered impassable <laughs> Yeah. Um, which I would love to go play this mission 
at Warhammer World if ever that board was a publicly bookable <laughs> table. Yeah. <laughs> because I do think it is funny how this is a very bespoke mission for a very bespoke table that exists at Warhammer World <laughs> designed for this narrative yeah. environment. But I like the fact that there's an effort to try and standardize it so that if people have the parts or the desire to sort of try and simulate that layout, they can do if it's just marking stuff out with paper or yeah. cardboard. Like Dan said, as I'd say, like Dave says, the old necromunda terrain, if you've got it. I was yeah. even thinking about things like yeah, Space Hulk or Blackstone Fortress tiles. Yeah. Yeah, there's any number of things you could use for to sort of represent that and have it look, you know, reasonable for a battle or two. Yeah, but obviously there's just... a there's a big potentially a big hobby project behind that that would, uh, you know, look pretty pretty good. I mean, again, depending on how much you know uh, board you want to cover, how densely, and how much you're willing to spend. You could, mm-hmm. in theory, you could do this by buying the Sector Mechanicus kits and just not actually mounting them on the legs. So you just yeah. have the flat panel walkways and yeah. you just lay those out on top of your battle map. Yeah, that'd be pretty straightforward. If uh, if you had those and you magnetized them or something. for uh... Yeah, I mean, obviously that would be yeah. you know that one step further if you want to be able to magnetize them to do them as both. But um, there's, I would love to know and see photos in our Facebook group if anyone does manage to play a game with this scenario in a <laughs> way that feels, you know, mm. validated and you know significant. So our because next game I- then, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're going to pony up the cash for all the terrain I need to buy in advance. Uh, mm, 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 no. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, it's... Um, I, I think looking at it on paper, it seems like a deceptively straightforward mission, but when you consider that units are not going to be able to move as the crow flies to where they want to go, they're going to have to maneuver around via the walkways. Yep. Um enemy units are going to pose real roadblocks because you can't just go around them. You're going to have to go through them. And then depending on how much flying units are brought to the board by the two respective armies, what um, uh, difficulties they throw in, you know, what challenges they present is going to be interesting as well. I mean, again, I've got visions of a basilisk sat in one corner going, well, I can fire indirectly on anyone. So I'm just going to start bombarding you know, whichever units require it in attempts to knock them off these gantries and clear the way for my own troops. So uh, here's a thought, right? Mm-hmm. You play that mission, but you um you use the uh, the uh, Septius Dry River Valley uh, theater of war. <laughs> See where I'm going with this? Yeah. So uh, you all get. Get nice and wet midway through the game. Yeah, I guess, I guess you could because it'll be an interesting is, combination. Yeah. yeah, this is a mission, and you could play it in that theater of war. And yeah, maybe rather than it being a dam breaking, you just uh, have a tidal wave that comes through. Yep, <laughs> that'd be a good one to play with this. 
Um, I mean, it's worth noting as well that it doesn't technically list this as like a crusade mission. There's no crusade reward associated, like even a standard game, like you know, gain an extra requisition yeah. or an extra macro greatness or anything like that. Um, but there's no reason why you can't just randomize one from any crusade mission pack you have to hand. Any mission can be a crusade mission. True enough. I guess the other way of doing it, you talked about if you've got any zone mortalis type type terrain, um, although that's a bit more structured, you could help use that to create passageways and um, and, and block out areas that were, were flooded or whatever. I think that was the other thing I thought was we were reading through this. Yeah, that'd be another way of doing it. I, yeah, th- I think I mean, it's definitely, um, like you say, it's, it's a project concept, isn't it? That would be great to yeah. spend some time bringing to fruition. So you could just do the reverse and um, get a, a like a, a a sort of industrial battle mat and just put some some like blue or green shapes on yeah. to be the water. Yes, true. Actually, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, if you cut out um, what you want to be the impassable areas and yeah. use that layered onto your industrial board so you end up with effectively creating the negative space yeah. of these walkways. Yeah, that'd be another way of doing it. And you could make them look quite watery if you were that way inclined. Yeah, good thought. Yeah. That's good. So yeah, um that sort of brings us to the end of this somewhat six month epic um ongoing <laughs> series. Um, within Flashpoint Charidon and next month it starts all again so we'll probably yep. be checking back in with this in three months time when we'll have a couple of issues to discuss um, and I'm interested to know if it's going to be different again because the first Flashpoint was actually more of a campaign system for the um, uh, Argobon stuff yep. yeah mm-hmm. whereas this one for Charidon has been much more a theatres of war system so We'll see what Octavius has. Yeah. Who knows? It might be, I don't know, maybe like character development or something. You know, Tyranids evolving, orcs getting bigger, whatever. Ooh, yes, who knows? I'm, who I'm knows? interested to find out. Um, so then, I think that's sort of bringing us to the end of everything tonight. So just before we sort of wrap it up, Let's go over a couple of community spotlights. And I think perhaps in the theme of White Dwarf, Dan, do you have something <laughs> in mind that you wanted to give us a, a little yes. community shout out? So uh, I would like to shout out the, um, uh, the I think, Instagram and Twitter account uh, that is Artists Empire, that is also a guy called Scott who was recently in a White Dwarf. Um, uh, one of the ones we were just talking about, in fact, I believe. Yes, four six five, four six five. That's the one. Yeah. So basically, his his deal uh, is that he does paint overs, um, which is he takes a a photo of a model and photoshops it to make it look like it's in a cool sort of in background in universe like scene with uh, all sorts of. Uh, good effects of like fire and and you know glow from the guns and all sorts of cool stuff uh, and they all look really awesome uh, i've been following him on twitter for quite a while um he has a patreon and stuff like that and he also does free paint overs 
Uh, every now and again, he'll do a, a free paint over day where you can just reply to his his tweet and and uh, with a picture. Uh, and he might, if you're lucky, he might pick one of yours and go, oh, I'll do that and, and make it look really cool. So, uh, yeah, Artist's Empire. Yeah, it's, it is a really good one. I, I read the White Dwarf article covering what he does, and I've seen some examples of stuff that he's, uh, he's done for various community members online, and it's really good. It's um, You mentioned before the show that it's somewhat in the style of the old Imperial armor, sort of like cover arts and stuff, where it's that, yeah. like you say, in university photoshopped image of real models yep. but it's, it's done really well yeah it's a bit more advanced than those were <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, times so have yeah, changed definitely a good one to check out um dave yourself yeah just a couple of people that uh, i follow on instagram i'm not a big instagram user but when i dip in i, I like to see pictures of toy soldiers <laughs> which i find quite inspirational uh there's a couple of lads from our club lee, uh, lee who i mentioned earlier who's one of the lads i'm going to the tournament with he's uh he's called nation of lee or one word on instagram at nation of lee and uh he's been posting a picture of his soul haunters which are really worth looking at if you not had uh, not been and done that before. Uh, it's quite a nice account to follow. The moment he's painting up uh, a crew for the new Stargrave game, which is not a GW game, it's a sci-fi game we're going to be playing. But he's using the old. Uh, he's found a few online, picked up a few odds and sods of the um, the Kill Team Rogue Trader set, um, and he's doing a really really lovely job of painting those up. Um, so Nation of Lee's worth following on Instagram. Uh, and the other person is uh, one of our uh, friends who's been on the coast before, uh, who we call Cadian Dan, but on uh, on Instagram he's called Garage Hobbit. And uh, he posts plenty of pictures of his guard. And he's been doing a, a second edition Ultramarine style project recently as well. And um, lots of uh, great inspiring pictures there from Garage Hobbit on Instagram, also known as Dan. Yeah, that, that being Cadian Dan, not to be confused with Cadian Shock or Cadian Sergeant Steel or various what? other Cadian based social media accounts. But yeah, it's a. Or Dan that we're talking to today yeah. or any other lots of confusion. <laughs> Make sure you get your right Cadian and your right Dan. <laughs> yep, followed and followed. Uh, and then for myself, I want to shout out. Um, the Dice Thrower podcast. So it's it's a relatively new podcast. It's been going for probably maybe a month or two now. I think there's about six episodes under his belt, but um, it's really good. I've been really enjoying it, and it's more in the sort of like interviewers style podcasting sort of content. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's the sort of format of the sort of you know Joe Rogan show and stuff like that. Um, where basically um, he gets on just various people in the community and talks to them about the hobby and what they you know get up to. And quite often it's um, content creators who he has on and they talk about the sort of stuff they do or what community involvement they're in. And like his very first episode, he actually had um, Beard from Tabletop Tactics on. Nice. Um, and he's had you know other various... Um, community members and personas on since then so it's been really good um, it's nice to just hear a show that's like just talking to these community members but it's not about necessarily you know what they like what they do day to day 
in there like content creation it's more just about like why they do it and what got them into the hobby and you know and what they enjoy about it and you know why they continue to do what they do sort of thing more about the like the face behind the content than the content itself yeah um so i've been enjoying it it's just quite insightful and he's had a a few different sort of guests on and uh, yeah i've been enjoying it so that's the uh, the dice thrower podcast uh, i suggest you go check it out noted <laughs> super um so yeah i think until three months time <laughs> that is uh, everything for our latest flashpoint episode um Next episode is going to be something a bit special and a bit different, uh, but I'm really looking oh. forward to doing it. And then after that, I believe it's going to be probably our Book of Fire review, assuming that I you know, get a chance to get hold of it and digest it all, find out what Bellacor and his flunkies are up to. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, probably new mission pack after that, so... We've got plenty to keep us going and plenty for you guys to listen into. So if you are enjoying the show, then definitely go check out our Facebook group, uh, Narrative Wargaming on Facebook. Go check out all our various social media accounts and say links for everything are below. And uh, yeah, consider giving us a like or a follow or possibly even you know, having a look over at our Patreon and uh, seeing what we get up to over there because say we've got our casual conversation series and other exclusives to follow soon so if you do want to hear more from us and more of our topical hobby chat then uh, go check that out uh, so thank you Dan and thank you Dave for joining me again tonight no problem yeah, thanks for the chat, it's great and until next time guys this has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast helping you to discover more ways to play 40 games